I'm Alina Utrada, and you're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Welcome back to The Rights Pod. If you're interested in human rights, you're listening to The Rights Pod. Last week, we spoke to Anjali Kata and Gabby Torres Lorenzotti as part of our Notes from Alumni series, in which we interview alumni from the human rights minor about life after graduation. What has life been like in the immediate years after university for these graduates? What is having a human rights job, or not having a human rights job, meant for them? And what advice can they give current and future human rights students? For this episode, I sat down with Keith Knobs from the class of 2019 and Emma Pear, class of 2018. We realize that this podcast is being recorded at a time when coronavirus has upended the world as well as many of our students' plans. One thing I liked about this conversation with Emma and Keith is that they talk about what happened when plans change, when your master plan didn't quite work out the way you thought it would. So even though the alumni that we're talking to didn't graduate into the same world or even experience the same Stanford as many of our students now, we still think Keith and Emma have some very interesting insights for what to do when all of a sudden your master plan changes. You're listening to The Rights Pod. So hi, everyone. We're really excited because today we're speaking to two alums, Emma Pear and Keith Knobs. Um, so Emma and Keith, why don't you give us, you know, a 30 second introduction um, to yourselves? Hey, guys, I am Emma. I currently do maternal and child health global research at Stanford. I was a PD undergrad at Stanford and did Earth Systems graduate degree at Stanford. Uh, Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Keith. Um, I came to Stanford three years ago, four years ago in 2016. Um, I went to the High School Performing Arts in New York. I started working as an actor for about 20 years. And then in the end, say, I I wish I finished college. So I applied in my late 30s to go back to school. I graduated Stanford in 2019 with a degree in anthropology. uh, And I'm starting law school in the fall. Congratulations. Thank Which you. Which law school? Um, so far, I'm settled on NYU. I'm still on some wait lists, so we'll see. But I love NYU, so hopefully. Oh, congrats. That's exciting. Yeah, NYU is fantastic. Thank you. So, yeah, so maybe the two of you could talk a little bit about, like, what brought you, like, kind of like the beginning of your Stanford journey, what brought you to, to Stanford, and specifically kind of what brought you to the center and brought you to human rights? Sure. I think that part of what um, is great about Stanford is kind of the approach to learning that feels different from, you know, some other universities of the practical application of what you're learning. So especially coming back as an older student, that was something I was really interested in. And it was just that kind of a careers fair that I met Penelope and her little one running around. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Penelope Van Tile is the executive director of the Human Rights Center. 
Yes, the the organizational leadership guru. <laughs> um, and then I went to an open house and met Jesse Bruner, who also helps run the center. And um, and from there, I just started became more interested in that as a practical application for what I'm learning, especially with anthropology, which looked at a lot of kind of social, political, governmental, and economic institutional constructions. Looking at that and examining what's equitable and fair, and human rights seemed a, a a good way to kind of explore that. Yeah, Emma, how about you? Yeah, so why I went to Stanford in the first place, I grew up in the South and I kind of didn't, I didn't really feel like I belonged there. Like I was vegan. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious that that doesn't really vibe with barbecue and like pork ribs. So uh, I decided, you know, maybe California is a better place for me. So uh, I came out here to Stanford. I thought, oh, I cared about animal rights first. And then I realized, oh, people also need to have rights. Like we need to care about people. I am a person. And so I started to get into human rights. And I found the center just because I looked up human rights at Stanford. Did you, where in uh, the South did you grow up? I grew up in Alabama. Alabama. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Yeah. So I know, yeah, you need to be, you need to eat some barbecue to belong <laughs> there. They thought, yeah, they thought I was going to wither away. <laughs> <laughs> and then you got to California and it was boring to be vegan. People were like, oh, another one. They're like, that's so 2004. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess then thinking about um, your guys' Stanford experience, you know, you have the benefit of, of hindsight. What were some of the things that like stood out to you, like now looking back that you really remember as being like either very formative or very impactful? There were, um, I found that there were the classes specifically, the, the, the content and the material, but also how the classes were organized. I just remember taking classes that just inspired me so much. I took this Michelle Elam course on James Baldwin that just was combined kind of literary theory with social justice and what that looks like and, and how to make a difference. Justice, I remember taking, which I really enjoyed. Um, I took this fantastic course called uh, Anthropological and Psychiatric Approaches to Mental Illness that looked at kind of biological determinant factors of mental illness and also social constructions of how we perceive ourselves, you know, and kind of how that's fueled by huge money-making enterprises and psychopharmaceuticals. And, um, and so, and that kind of, that led to a human rights fellowship that I did through the center actually, where I went to India and dealt with um, kind of community-based mental health care um, organizations and kind of where the where the state didn't provide meet the needs of the people living in these rural villages how do you create a community-based network that utilizes kind of the strengths of you know they there's such a sense of group identity and group care how do we how do we emphasize that and to, to meet people's real pressing healthcare needs. So all that was from, I mean, the, the, the center really provided an outlet to go, okay, now I find this interesting. What do I do with it? And I self-designed the fellowship and, and won funding and then was able to kind of go off and perform this, which I felt, which was really formative because it allows you to really step in and make a difference and contribute, you know, instead of 
experience what you're learning about in a practical setting rather than just going, huh, that's an interesting abstract idea. <laughs> what does this actually look like for people? You know? Yeah. Getting out of the ivory tower for a bit. Really yeah, good. definitely. Yeah. Emma, did you have a similar or different experience? So I have to agree, there are a ton of amazing classes and not just the classes professors, but I think kind of a way that I got out of the ivory tower, I tried to take classes that were very skill based. Mm. Like I know that there was a class I took called engineering for good and they partnered us with NGOs. Like I partnered with something called ABCs for Global Health, and they went to places like Nicaragua to bring health care to people who basically lived in villages, had no access to modern health care. And I just appreciated actually being able to do something, and it wasn't just the theory of human rights, which is important, but, you know, I want to be able to apply that. So Emma, what was it that you majored in? I majored in product design engineering. So could you tell us a little bit about like how you decided on that major and then maybe a bit about how how you felt like your engineering um, coursework fit in with your human rights coursework? Did it feel like a natural fit or did it feel like two different worlds or? I think so. I did not come in product design engineering. I thought I was going to do something like biomedical engineering or bioengineering, but I ended up with product design just because I wanted to do something more creative, you know, something that was more centered around people. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was. What is, can I ask, I, I don't even completely understand, like product design, what that, what that actually is or what that entails, kind of how you look and kind of go, how, how, what, what pushes the decisions of you to, what, of how you design something? I guess. Yeah, so you could kind of, I want to, I tell people, think about Apple. What do they do? They really value the customer. But so when you do product design, you're focused on trying to have empathy mm. for, we call like a, the person you're designing for a user. And you're just trying to get in their shoes and figure out what they need, even if they can't like tell you they'll tell you what they think they need but maybe it's not what they're actually needing mm. it's <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain but no that's it that's it that makes sense that totally makes sense it's really interesting you're trying to kind of get in their shoes and kind of see what would through their experience make this work easier for them or better yeah. for them what would yeah what would make their life easier that's really interesting, Emma, because that sounds like it fits like very closely into like what a lot of the skills you learn in human rights. Um, did you find that that was the case? That it, it felt similar? Or did it felt really different, your major and your minor? Well, I think they were somewhat different. I mean, I felt somewhat out of place. I think I may have been the first like BS student or I was the first engineering student, I think, with the human, the human rights, rights minor. Yeah, in the human rights minor. But I mean, I feel like a lot of the stuff that I worked on, I worked in the center on like design stuff for websites that were human rights 
related. So you felt like it, it, did it feel like it came together in the end or, or I guess if yeah. you were thinking about engineering students at Stanford now who are thinking about human rights, like what, what would you tell them? I think no matter where you're coming from, if you have some sort of tool or method that you know how to use, you can usually apply it to human rights in some way. Like some human rights problem, you can use your knowledge to solve it. And just give your skills, just give what you have, like you're gonna know something and you can use that for human rights. I am positive. So Keith, what did you end up majoring in? I was I majored in cultural anthropology and had minors in human rights and history. Yeah, so can you tell us like how did you how did you go about deciding like you know especially coming coming back to school after after working for a bit like how did you decide Sure yeah I I mean I felt as I said I worked as an actor forever and I felt that that idea of kind of learning about someone else's experience and then creating a means to you know to express that person's experience that felt very anthropological to me like engaging kind of kind of what you were saying Emma like the idea of like empathizing with someone's situation and then creating a tool or a structure to to make that become more clear or to engage that in some way and so cultural anthropology really felt like just a, a social science lens through which to do the work that I kind of always did before and um, and that's always what interested me about acting. When you're when you're acting and you get a character, say he might not be of the same socioeconomic position you are. He's had experience. He's a sexual abuse survivor. I mean, whatever that character's specific situation is, it's an opportunity to learn about that. And there was always kind of an element of that was always what I enjoyed the most when I was working on a play or doing a movie. It was like, how do I flesh out this person's experience? So there was always kind of an intellectual journey with it, and then. I took in 2004, I went back to NYU for one year while I was kind of acting full time. And I did a year of classes and I took anthropology classes and fell in love. And then it was always in the back of my head, like, if I ever go back to school, if I ever go back to school. <laughs> and then um, and then when I made the decision to go back, I kind of flirted with political science, public policy, sociology. Um, but in the end, I was just, I love the kind of the relational idea of anthropology where sociology might be more data focused. Anthropology is really about community engagement, which just, and a relational approach to, to knowledge that uh, just fit very well with me as an actor. And that's kind of what I want to do going to law school, do to do like public defender work, to deal directly with communities and, and look at how you can make a difference, um, you know, immediately for people. Yeah, I wonder, Keith, because I think that's a, that's a theme that's come up in previous podcasts or speaking with students is, you know, even in picking a major, which is like this fear that like, whatever major I pick is the rest of my life, and it's going to determine so much. Um, so, you know, even before you got to Stanford, like, like, how, like, did your plans change? Like, was this something that you always had in the back of your mind? Did you feel like it was all of a sudden, like, you were just like, I need to change my life for this? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like it, it, it's funny when you make a big decision in your life or you, or you, you know, uproot something, you can look back after the fact and make sense of everything that came before it. Just like if you're in a relationship and the relationship breaks up, you can go, oh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which you can't quite see, you know, when you're in it. 
but um but i do feel like yeah there was a moment i think it kind of built up for a moment and then um there was a uh i had a tv series that got canceled and it was right before christmas and i was like huh this is now an opportunity this is a disruption and there's a you know there there's a great quote that says no crisis should be wasted you know whenever something disrupts and i feel like that actually right now we're in this moment where a lot of our systems that may be unfair or unjust are falling apart that there's opportunities to rebuild those structures possibly in ways that are more equitable and fair so there's creative work to be done when things dismantle which is harder to do when the machine is humming along so just on a that's on a macro level but on a personal level i felt that and i kind of looked at what i wanted to do and so i was doing an off-broadway play in new york and i just decided to apply to schools while i was doing this play i would come home and i would write essays not knowing if i'd get in not knowing if financially it would make sense and then one thing led to another and as soon as it happened and then financially it did make sense i go i guess i'm moving across the country and starting life part two my friends who are actors were like you're doing what <laughs> you're going to college all my friends at stanford were like you were an actor <laughs> what is going on but it was it was incredible and it was this kind of it was a, this humbling i this there was a humbling sense i found that you know, it, you don't necessarily know what your limits are. You start to think, you start to see patterns in your life. You start to think there are walls and kind of, there can be a narrowing as you get older or as you develop down a certain path that you think, oh, this is now my life. But that those walls can somehow be, you know, they're, they, you can blow on them and they fall down and you go, oh, there's a whole horizon there. I had no idea. And it's literally like a, a totally new experience and, in my life, which I feel so grateful for. And it was really Stanford that provided me the opportunities. Like, I think if I had a terrible undergraduate experience, I wouldn't, I'd be running back to acting and not going on to law school. But it, it's really made me feel like the things that I have, I think it was what you said, I mean, it's like you have things that can contribute. And I didn't know that before, um, you know, before going back to school. Do you think, over time you got to know yourself better and that kind of gave you more confidence to do something new or like how did you get there definitely i would definitely say that's true there's this there's this quote that i love that i don't know i'd be interested in your guys take on it but in like 20s are tough i just think 20s legitimately are tough 18 to 22 when people start college is tough like you're you're dealing you're releasing yourself from your parents and that whole kind of familial structure you're you're meeting people you're testing out these this idea of who you are you're testing your boundaries like do i go to this party do i make out with this person and then regret it do i have <laughs> you know there's a whole there's a lot of emotional kind of work that you have to do at that age which i kind of felt like i was cheating at stanford because i'd done that so long ago i didn't have to counterbalance that with all the opportunities stanford gave me and it i would look sometimes at people traditionally going through school and i go that's so hard because they're being given all of these opportunities but there's all this completely legitimate valid personal work that you have to do at that age that arguably you're less available for for what's in front of you that it takes or it just takes more work to navigate but um, the, the quote I heard about your 20s, which I always loved, that felt true to me, which is your, your 20s are about letting go of the idea of what you thought your 20s were supposed to be. <laughs> I like so that. As, 
you enter your professional life and you have all these expectations of self and how you're supposed to do. And it takes a full year, almost a 10 year grieving process to let go of those ideas to in the end, just look at what you actually have instead of comparing that to a normative idea of, of what you're supposed to be and what you should be. So I think I did go through that. And then in my thirties, I was like, what do I actually want? And I love learning. And that's kind of, as I made more space for that, it just kind of brought me back to school. That's wonderful, yeah. I think we have a couple of um, like the distinguished fellows who come back to school and they say the same thing that, you know, this is the most fantastic time to be back in school is, is you know, later in your life. He is um, so appreciative of it. Like everything is a get to, nothing is a have to. Yeah. Yeah, which definitely. doesn't mean you don't work your I mean you work but <laughs> but you're also like oh yeah I am like I'm doing this for me I really like this you know I guess too like I mean that's a I think it's such an important point that like sometimes we don't talk about is that like in addition you know people give a lot of advice about like Stanford and what you should do at Stanford which is like oh this major this class you know this fellowship, this opportunity, but you're also, you know, a person, like, as you said, Keith, and I think it's so true, 18 to 22 is such a tough time, mm -hmm. um, like, developmentally, um, both personally and in your life, like, did, like, and this, you know, this is for Emma and Keith, both of you, like, did you feel like that was something that was challenging about Stanford, was, like, balancing, um, balancing, like, the personal and professional, you know, air quotes that, um, and, and did you feel like, like people at Stanford talked about it or, or people were there to support, support like you as a holistic person? Wow. What do you think, Emma? <laughs> yeah, since I was, yeah, I mean, I was in my twenties when I was at Stanford. I mean, I don't think anybody really talked about that specifically. I do remember it being very difficult to balance things at Stanford, I tended to feel always overwhelmed because, you know, I wanted to go to parties. I wanted to hang out with people. Like I never did that in high school. I was, you know, a nerdy <laughs> kid. <laughs> so yeah, it was difficult. And I feel like the pressure at Stanford to do something really awesome like you wanted to be with awesome people, but you also had to do awesome things. And sometimes it was hard to balance those. My, my friends, my undergraduate friends, and especially in some ways, I would say my, my female undergraduate friends, they, they would talk about that they felt this pressure to be all things, to be like, to be like healthy, to work out, to do, to be expert in academics, to be doing, be focusing on business, that there was kind of this, not necessarily spoken, but just latent expectation that you were supposed to be good at everything that they described as creating a lot of pressure for them that looking back when they were seniors, they were like, I don't know if that was the best way to approach it, but it was something that felt in the air. I don't, did you feel that, Emma, or not as much? I still feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, working on it. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's like the, it's what they, what do they call it? FOMO. It's like fear of missing out in a sense too. They say, people have said that like quarantine is great for counteracting FOMO. Because you're like, <laughs> yeah. everything's canceled. <laughs> <laughs> nothing is going on. Nothing. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess too, like, I think, again, I, I felt that sometimes the advice or the things that people would talk about were the really, like, positive things about Stanford. Did you ever feel like there were parts of your Stanford that you didn't like or you really struggled with or, um, you know, you felt sad or you wish you didn't do or you wish Stanford wasn't like this? Had, I always had a feeling, and I think Stanford hopefully is getting better at this, but I, I looked at, you know, Stanford's focus on engineering and on computer science specifically. They are, I felt like when I was there, because so many people go into the private sector and make a ton of money and give back a ton of money to Stanford, it felt like the cycle where there was an argument to be made that Stanford is basically a high-end vocational school, creating top talent and then just pushing that into the private marketplace. And I I really felt like, and there, and that there was this separation between kind of the, the humanities, social sciences, and the, and the hard sciences and engineering. And I always felt like Stanford as an institution, and I think they want to do this and they're moving in this direction, to create a bridge between those so that Stanford-specific stamp or brand of computer science is not just private sector, but really looks outward in terms of, from a human rights perspective, you're creating the people who are in control of the language that is that that is everywhere and that is controlling so much in in present day life that there should be some perspective of how can that be applied for the benefit of others and for the social good and that that was incumbent on stanford to to kind of stamp that on and i never really felt like that was pursued institutionally as much as i would have liked to have mm-hmm. seen it because i think they benefited so much from it I mean, those, the people who go off from Stanford go in and make so much money. And a lot of that money comes back on Stanford. So that is something I wish for the future of Stanford, that I feel like there's, there's something very ripe about that idea that could, that could really be a game changer in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, so I actually do, I have a grant from some AI. It's a new AI I'm not sure what it is at Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's an institute, but yeah, I mean, I am working on uncovering gender bias in the media using AI. So oh. um, there are people at Stanford in computer science and you know across the school that care about using these tools for things like equality. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know how many people there are that are doing this. I don't. Yeah. And I should I should qualify by saying I'm speaking in such broad brushstrokes. <laughs> okay. I don't I do not mean to paint everyone because, of course, that's right. But what in what way would you be using AI to kind of uncover gender bias out of curiosity? Yeah, there is something called natural language processing and you can use this tool to kind of see what words are associated with women and men and see the difference between that and over Mm. time you can see like you can see like occupations like are more men or more women employed like in what kind of things are they employed or are women being associated with leadership words like positive negative words that was kind of a, a shock coming back to school later where, you know, you look at Harvard and Yale and I think they were sexually integrated in 
what, like the late 70s? It was late in the 1970s. But even that, I was looking at in the classroom where you have equal parts male and female students, of course, equally bright and contributing equally. And then you say, so we've had decades of this, of equal training. We have a workforce that is equally trained amongst men and women. And then you look up and you say, where, so where is the equity in positions of leadership? And it's so clearly not there. We've been for decades have this equally trained workforce. And yet still there's just like you're saying, I mean, it's like certain, certain industries, certain fields, and definitely where they fit on that ladder seems to be gender specific. Yeah. One of my friends is a biology PhD. She told me, I don't know if this is true, but she said that now biology has a lot of women in it. And so it's being perceived less and less as a harder science and people are getting paid less in it because there's more women. That's terrifying. Uh, Oh my God. um, My friend was doing a study talking about, um, uh, uh, looking at kind of autism in the in the workplace, that in a lot of kind of hard sciences or computer science fields, that there there are a lot of people who are somewhere on the spectrum, and then looking at how that affects kind of an approach towards women entering the workplace and how they deal with women, where they might not be, or there might be a pattern in the workplace where you're less aware of kind of the social conditions that has created inequity in the past. So. Th- so there's less of an ability to engage that in the workplace and more focus on the work that makes it more difficult for women entering the field. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue. I mean, Emma, how did you feel like leaving Stanford, um, um, you know, gender, if you want to engage with it, but like, what, what was that like Stanford to work transition like? Well, it's kind of... So, I mean, I still kind of work for Stanford. I, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I'm outside that. I don't, it's, yeah, I don't think that I am the person to ask that right now because I don't work in industry. So what is your official role at, at Stanford then? Research assistant. I think that's interesting because I felt that that was actually something that a lot of my friends did, um, which was they stuck around Stanford for a bit in some capacity. I mean, I'm doing it right now. I work for the Human Rights Center. Um, Did you you feel that was something, like, do you have other classmates who did that or do you feel like you were the only one that you know who? Yeah, so I am specifically doing this this is all part of a master plan to go to medical <laughs> school, which, at which I'm applying to right now. It's what my master's is for. So this, is, this has been in the works for a while. I mean, I've always cared about health. In terms of other friends sticking around Stanford, most of my friends did not know, but they, they didn't want to seek higher education. Mm, I see. So yeah, so then, so you said you're doing medical school applications? Yes. How is, how is preparing for that? I imagine it's a bit like last book. Oh my goodness, you have yeah. to be on top of everything, like just remembering old professors, you know, contacting them. Like, can you write this letter for me? Like, and I think a good thing to always keep in mind, even if you, like, if you think at all, you... Uh, 
basically, I think it's a good idea to get to know your professors, especially if there's something you're interested in, please talk to that professor. And, and I, f I found in my experience at Stanford that if you expressed interest, that the professors met you in a real genuine way and were, and were generous with their time. So I would just echo that and say reaching out is a, is a great idea. Yeah, I got a lot of my jobs and connections just by knowing professors because, I mean, they'll know people like in academia, outside academia, like if there's a topic that they do, they, they'll have connections in multiple places you might even not realize. Yeah, Keith, is that, is that, is that a similar experience to how, I mean, you're going to law school, but when you were doing applications, like, was that really <laughs> stressful and overwhelming? Were you doing other things at the same time or how was that yeah. process? I got well, I like, yeah, I mean, I, I probably didn't do it <laughs> in the best way possible. I'm probably not a shining example, but it was, I was in my last quarter where I was writing my thesis and it got to around Thanksgiving and I was like, oh, I got to get these in. So I took, <laughs> when I came home for Thanksgiving break and everything quieted for a bit, I just got everything together. I had talked to professors about writing letters of recommendation. I kind of had a rough version of my personal statement and I just kind of got everything together and before Thanksgiving applied. I don't know if it's the same with medical school, but slots start to fill up um, quickly. And so if you apply later in the cycle, there might be less available um, in a certain way, but it was, yeah, it was tough. It was definitely two, you know, juggling two things at the same time of trying to tie up Stanford in a neat little bow and then apply forward. And I also, I applied with the, uh, the law schools now accept the GRE in addition to LSAT. So I had taken the GRE for a history co-term, which I didn't take because of, for money reasons, but I had a GRE score. So I was like, let me just apply with the GRE see what happens. And then if I don't like my options, I can kind of go back and retool. But it was, it was a little shotgun, which I, I'd imagine Emma's yours is a little bit more methodical and <laughs> thinking through it, which is better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so get, doing the co-term was not at all, like it was like you and I think your law school, maybe. I decided like at the very last minute, wow, this co-term is a ticket to like, take the classes that I need to before I can apply to medical school. It's the way I'm going to get research experience because, yeah. I mean, keep in mind that I was a product design major who like did some health stuff because I was interested in it. But ultimately, I thought I was going to be a product designer. And I was like, wait, I really don't want to do this. I want to be a doctor. Like, that's what I want to do. So I emailed Gary Cold, who's my master, who was my master's advisor. And he was like, yes, I'd love to be your advisor. Like, I've never met you, but I know that you really care about these things. Yes, let's do this. And that's, you know, that's why I mentioned professors before. Was that your senior year, Emma? Yes, that was my senior year. That I'd... So senior year, you decided to completely change your plan and do something different. Yes. So exactly. it's possible. <laughs> it's never too late. It's never too late. So yeah, I guess then, Keith, what, what was your process for deciding you wanted to go to law school? 
There was, I guess, a little bit of what I spoke to before is that law seemed to be the action plan. So it seemed to be the way to kind of, when looking at kind of, uh, you know, social and structural aspects that determine specific outcomes, then what is the intervention? What is the plan? And it does seem a tool to, to achieve that, of which there are, there are many, but it seemed like one that made sense. And the, and the writing and kind of oral advocacy, I think, fit well with ACT acting and the ability to, and with anthropology, I mean, there's, especially in public defense, there, you know, anthropology spends a lot of time as a discipline interrogating the, the right you have to speak on others' behalves. Because you're going into communities that are not your own, you're collecting and curating information, you're refracting. I mean, it is, it is definitely a narrative that you are creating just in that you can't include every fact you know, it's qualitative data and some are omitted, some are highlighted and others are kind of less emphasized. So, so how, so storytelling in a sense, and what are, what are the ethical thorny questions of telling other people's stories and what do you do? And so, you know, at times in anthropology, honestly, it can feel like navel gazing and can be in the sense of like asking those questions is it's a processual aspect of the discipline. It's, it's the asking of the question is actually part of the discipline itself, not just a means to get to the end result. So it's in that process of kind of questioning, when are you overstepping that I found a lot of actual overlap with human rights, the whole idea of kind of nothing about it, nothing about us without us, that you never step into someone else's experience and you try to tell you know, tell their narrative. There are times actually studying some of the, the international mechanisms of human rights where, you know, as an anthropology major, that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, where you would see a lot of these crimes that are happening in these tribunals are happening, you know, in Africa, but happening in these European courts. And sometimes the trials are conducted in languages that the, the victims don't even speak. And you have, and to ask kind of what are, what kind of, what, what are we having there in order, what recourses are afforded that make sense to the people that are in the language that the people might, might most want and asking those questions, um, I don't know, is moving to me and it's invigorating and it's, and it's challenging, but laws kind of about now, how do I do that and, and stand up for the possibility of benefit or recourse for the person who's been harmed so how do you guys um how do you guys think about or and how would you i guess advise people that they think about like making the next making the next step so if you were talking to students uh depends on where they are i'm not sure that's I think it's important for them to know their values. Like, it's important to know what they care about. I mean, you should know what interests you naturally. I mean, if they're trying to figure out a job, they could think about what would I wake up and be excited to do? What would I you know, what would actually give me energy to do, what's not draining for me. And maybe they think that there's something they should do or the kind of person they should be, but they should really spend time getting to know themselves and 
what they, who they are and what they want to do. No matter what society is saying. <laughs> or Stanford or, you know, their friends at Stanford. Or your parents. Or your parents. Yeah. Totally. I thousand percent agree. And it's, and I think undergrad is such an opportunity to just throw paint at the walls and take the classes, take the class that you're like, oh, but this doesn't fit into my master plan, but I'm really interested in it. As much as you can make time and space to do that, because the incredible thing about a place like Stanford and like going into law school, I think this will be the case and Emma, maybe for you in medical school, that you have a certain idea and, but then you go in and you may take a class in something that is totally outside of what you thought you were interested in. You may have a professor that makes content you wouldn't otherwise be interested in seem amazing, and that may lead you on a specific path. So almost this idea of like predestination is a little bit of a fallacy because there are going to be so many, there's so many things that we can't yet know about what that experience is. So I, I'd say make space to try things out. I mean, I know, Alina, you studied in the UK, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the UK system, I did a, a quarter at Oxford, and talking to the undergrads at Oxford, you are a specialist so early, where we have a broad-based curriculum. There, it's you're, you are so specifically narrowly focused on this and you have incredible depth because of that that you are somewhat a master of your field in a way that american students aren't but what's useful for the american system i think is the broad range of opportunities and so i would say lean into that as much as possible yeah i i did a study abroad in germany and they also said that over there like we do have such freedom here i so I was talking to my boyfriend about this topic too. He went to Stanford as well. And he thought people should really just be, in the beginning, taking classes they're interested in. And you can see what kind of major results from those classes. If you're unsure about your major or what you might want to do, just see where it goes. I like that concept. So what do we think about a master plan, yay or nay? Nay. <laughs> I mean, it's, so I, I did use the term master plan. It's, it, if you finally know that this is what you want to do, like broadly, medicine is pretty broad. Yes, especially if it requires you to kind of be on top of a plan, but Overall, your plan is usually going to change in some way, and you, you kind of have to be able to be flexible in that regard, or else you're, you might just get frustrated or confused. Totally, and, I, and the plan changing is a good thing. I think generally like plan changing can feel to people like, Oh no, off course, off track, but it's usually a good thing. Something else is coming in, which is creates new possibilities. I think. So if you could give advice to yourself in mm. your first year at Stanford and then your last year at Stanford and Emma, you can define that as your last year in undergrad or your <laughs> subsequent degree. Um, but, but what would you say to your past self? I, <laughs> you can see on the Zoom, deep thought. You can see <laughs> us just in deep, deep thought. Do you, do you know, Emma? Do you have a sense? 
I think that I would tell my little freshman self, please don't try and do so much all at the same time. I took 16 units. I had a job. I was trying to do everything, you know, and I crashed and burned like autumn quarter of freshman year. And so I, I, I would tell myself, you don't have to rush. It's not a race. Like just kind of chill out. It's okay. It's better if you go slow, actually. Mm. And I would also tell myself to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, for serious, yeah. Sleep is not overrated. You will be able to think clearer. You will be healthier. You will not be getting sick as much. Like there are real reasons they say to get seven to eight hours of sleep every night. You will just be a happier person, trust me. <laughs> I, I have been chronically sleep deprived at Stanford and it just made me frazzled. And to echo that point, the work you do when you are well rested is better. So something that may take you four hours of just kind of grinding through it where you're not thinking clearly, I, I found this when I would sometimes wake up in the morning and get my work done before class, I could finish that in an hour and a half, where it would have taken me four hours before, just because my mind was fuzzy and I was exhausted and tired. So what advice would you give to your first year self, Keith? I think that's very, Emma's advice is really good. Um, and I'd also say, like, yeah, in that same way of when I felt like overwhelmed by the amount of work that was in front of me, it was so hard to put the work down and say, go out and go for a run or do something to kind of clear my head. And I got better at that as I went on, but I wish I started that straight when I went into school because it helped enormously. Just keeping yourself balanced, keeping things in perspective, because it is an insane amount of work and you can look to your left and your right and everyone else seems to be doing it, especially at Stanford where everyone is tan with a smile. And be like, yeah, yeah, totally. I just, yeah, no big deal. And you're like, how is it no big deal for you? I'm working all the time. But, you know, and I would say in that, it's like everyone is kind of going through the same experience, but they might not exhibit it outward, that a lot of people are struggling in similar ways. So don't feel isolated and alone in that respect. And then what would you guys say to your final year selves? There was a... I would say, which I'm saying to myself now, since I just finished. So what am I saying to me now is that same approach that I took through Stanford of, of just pursuing the things I was most interested in served me really well and kind of made clear where I wanted to go in the future. So as I would tell myself, just as I'm moving forward from that transition out of Stanford, to hold that kind of approach to learning that Stanford allowed me to develop as I move into the next chapter of my life, like protect that and don't feel like that needs to shift because I'm going into a new way of learning in law school. And I, I think that... I would tell myself to keep on prioritizing your health because it's the foundation for everything else, no matter what you want to do. And I would just say, have confidence in yourself, like believe that you can do things. Don't, I mean, I have thought that I'm stupid before, like really, 
like, you should not feel that way. You are not stupid. And uh, I don't know, just, it may be cheesy, but do believe in yourself. You have a right to feel confident. Like I'm sure you've accomplished things in the past and maybe you overlook some things, but there are amazing things that you've done and there are amazing things about you. That's so well said, yeah. Yeah, so any other like final thoughts or comments that you, you hope that current or future undergraduates know? There was, um, I was going to say this in the last answer, but there was someone who spoke to us when I came in as a, because I was a transfer student. So there were a lot of people who were older and kind of coming from different life experiences coming into school. And someone when they spoke to us said, you know, think about, so you're now starting, right? You're, you begin Stanford. And they said, think about by the time you walk across that graduation stage or see that on Zoom for this year's graduating class, what are the things you want to have done? What are the things you want to have learned? What are the parts of yourself that you, you want to, you will have want to have developed? And all of that is possible at Stanford. So think about those things and just follow those classes, those courses, those programs, those opportunities that allow that. And that stuck in my head all throughout my, my three, four years at Stanford. And, um, and I would always go back to that as a guiding principle. And it, it helped me make big decisions, I think, sometimes and push me to do things I might not have done otherwise. Yeah, and even if you are unsure, just take action. Just yeah. do something. Yeah. Cool. If that if that fails, well, you can do something else. And you know, that's not gonna work for you. I like that Keith just but came out here, he did it. I mean, he left acting and came back to school. I mean, I think that's wonderful. Just, just take action. Thanks. Yeah, it's fun and action. It's a time to fail. Like it doesn't feel like that. And of course it doesn't at Stanford. It feels like a time to do everything perfectly, but it, there is, there are built-in mechanisms for you to take risks and there's more buffer than it, than it might feel like there is. So as much as you can, trust that, take risks, act. You've been listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Thank you so much again to our wonderful alumni, Keith and Emma, for this conversation about their life at and after Stanford. Like last week, the resources that Keith and Emma mentioned throughout our conversation will be available in the show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.